Talking Musicology, a bi-monthly podcast where we discuss two recent publications from the field of musicology broadly conceived and finish each episode with Research in the Round, which is our roundup of selected new publications from the field of musicology. My name is Stephen Graham and I'm here as ever with Liam Cagney. Hello. We are taking a slightly different tack today in that we're looking at some non-musicological or non-academic texts. These texts uh, are still in the kind of wheelhouse of the kinds of things we've been talking about in the previous two episodes, but they come from slightly different contexts. So the first piece we're going to look at is by Mark Greif, and this is published in the literary magazine N Plus One in 2005, and it's on the band Radiohead. And the second piece, which Liam can introduce... Uh, the second piece is not just one article, but a few articles in the most recent issue of Musik Text, a German journal. And these all discuss the notion of the new discipline, which is a purported new genre in contemporary classical composition uh, named and defined by Jennifer Walsh. We're going to start with this piece by Mark Rive on Radiohead. The title of the piece is Radiohead or the Philosophy of Pop. As I said, this piece was published in issue three of N Plus One in fall of 2005, aka autumn 2005. And the reason, personally, I wanted to talk about the piece is it introduces many, many big, huge topics um, which musicology often deals with, which other disciplines sometimes deal with, but it does it in a different kind of setting and with a different kind of language, since this is published originally in a, a literary journal, but a non-academic journal. It's also timely because Radiohead have just released their latest album, their new album, uh, Moon Shape Pool. So this piece maybe speaks to that release as well as speaking to the moment of its original release, which was 2005, which was coming just after Radiohead's album Hail to the Thief. To sum up this piece very quickly and concise, as concisely as I can. Greif is trying to answer some, some big questions here to do with, first of all, the kind of meaning and political power of Radiohead's music, and then more broadly speaking, the political potential and power of popular music on the whole. This is within the context of a very specific cultural moment of the late 90s and early 2000s, in which technophobia and anxieties around capitalism and globalization and so on were very much taking hold and very much defining the, the kind of cultural zeitgeist at the time. So Greif is trying to answer these big questions through the lens of, of Radiohead, looking at their music, the lyrics of their music, the sounds of their music and their place in the culture and trying to think about what they represent as a band and what kind of purposes they might serve. Before we dive into the details of this article, I wanted to just talk about the way he frames this piece. And this might be a useful jumping off point for our discussion of the, of the article, and it will allow us to get some more specifics about what he's doing here. He starts off by talking about the idea of a philosophy of popular music and the idea of music, popular music in particular, as a potentially revolutionary form. And I'm just going to read out a paragraph from towards the beginning of this article. So he says, I've wondered why there's no philosophy of popular music. Critics of pop do reviews and interviews. They write appreciation and biography. Their criticism takes many things for granted and doesn't ask the questions I want answered. Everyone repeats the received idea that music is revolutionary. Well, is it? Does pop music support revolution? We say pop is of its time and can date the music by ear with surprising precision to 1966 or 1969 or 1972 or 1978 or 1984? Well, is it? 
is pop truly of its time in the sense that it represents some aspect of exterior history apart from the path of its internal development? I know pop does something to me, everyone says the same. So what does it do? Does it really influence my beliefs or actions in my deep life where I think I feel it most? Or does it just insinuate a certain fluctuation of mood or evanescent pleasure or impulse to move? End quote. So this is setting up the argument of this article or the, the kind of what you might call the research question of this article, which is to think about these questions of can popular music be revolutionary? In what sense might it be revolutionary? And in what particular sense might Radiohead enact or embody some of those ideas? So, Liam, what are your kind of general reactions to this article, I guess, and in particular to these kinds of big ideas Grafe is setting up at the start? Well, my reactions are quite hard to sum up because they're sort of multifarious. But there were a few things that really interested me about this article. One of them is something that's relevant about what we were talking about last week uh, in relation to essayistic style in, in Scott Gleason's article and general academic practice with regards to writing about music. I like the idea of writing essayistically and intellectually about music in this way, but without some of the limitations that come with academic writing. For example, here, Greif is able to deal with these research questions as you uh, define them, but without having to encumber his essay with a literature review, with all these preliminaries that sort of get in the way sometimes of more direct engagement, I think, with music. So it's a, it's a really interesting premise from that point of view. He sets himself a difficult challenge in writing about um, a pop artist of such broad appeal and trying to really define what makes them important. It, it's it's a massive uh, undertaking. I'm not sure that he's uh, successful, really. Um, but part of that might come down to the fact that I'm not totally gone on Radiohead myself. I like some of their music, but other other music I don't like so much. So it's a provocative opening gambit and opening statement he makes. There's no philosophy of popular music. And I'd be inclined to uh, sympathise with that, but also to dispute it. So firstly, to sympathise with it, I think it's a real issue with musicology that we aren't able to often write books about artists such as Radiohead known to a broad music-loving public from an intellectual point of view and in a way that really illuminates the artist for the public in a way that journalism can't. And I think that's something that musicology really has to take seriously. Why is it that musicology isn't more broadly known within the listening public? I remember when Lou Reed died, actually, a couple of years ago. I wasn't really expecting something like that to have such an effect on me, but it really affected me more than I would have expected. And I remember just thinking a lot about what Lou Reed represented. And he was really somebody who just lived music. He kind of embodied or incarnated, as Greif would put it music. And I remember reflecting because I had to give a, a presentation that afternoon on a musicology paper, which I didn't like much. I remember reflecting that if someone were to come to me, some member of the public, and to ask for a recommendation of a book that really summed up what music was about, and, and this is a philosophical question, of course, I wouldn't give them any musicology book. I'd probably give them a biography of Lou Reed or something like that. And well, not everybody's going to agree with me on that. But that made me reflect in turn on what I just pointed out, that there is this shortcoming of musicology, arguably, in reaching out to the broad public. So in that respect, essays such as this, which aren't academic, but which are intellectual, are totally welcome. And uh, it's something I like about what Greif is doing here, even if um, I don't agree with all of it. And so to get to the point that I don't agree with when he says there's no philosophy of popular music, well, obviously we could point out Adorno, but I would also point out a writer such as Lester Banks, who isn't an academic, 
isn't a musicologist, is writing in a really popular style, but is doing so in a really thoughtful, deep and philosophical way. And to, well, to dismiss that is, I think, wrong here. If you are to build a philosophy of music, of popular music, sorry, then I think it's necessary to acknowledge precursors and that there have been people who've done philosophy of popular music. Yeah, I mean, you've raised so many interesting and important issues there. There's no way I could pick apart all of them, but I'll just try and hone in on one or two. I mean, the idea that, first of all, the idea that musicology is invisible and possibly irrelevant to a wider public, I absolutely recognise as a as a kind of a a real problem and a real thing. On the other hand, the the, the kind of anti-capitalist in me would, would, would maybe want to say, well, you know, who cares if you read? Who cares if if, if the public is actually paying attention to, to musicology? Because that's not its purpose and its strength. Its strength is, is generating a discourse which is able to exist away from the imperatives of accessibility and legibility to a broad public. I'm not sure how I actually ultimately feel about that, but there is that devil's advocate line which we could take, which is to say that, well, musicology's power is that it precisely doesn't exist within the public space, if you like. So there's that. The other thing I would say about this is that I absolutely do agree with you that a philosophy of popular music exists, of course. It exists both in the academy and it also exists outside the academy. Grail Marcus, Lester Bangs, uh, Ellen Willis, these are all really strong writers who thought about the meaning and function of popular music outside the academy. Inside the academy, well, it's the list is kind of endless from Adorno onwards, from music sociologists to music analysts to uh, you know cultural musicologists to computational musicologists. These are all people who are dealing with issues and questions of philosophy and meaning and value around popular music, which this article or essay just summarily ignores. So I think there's probably a middle ground that Greif could have entered into or, or kind of struck, which would be balancing out the kind of impulse to write in an accessible and legible way with the scholarly gains that he would have got, or not even scholarly, but just the, the kind of intellectual gains he would have got from contextualizing his writing a little bit, from actually acknowledging some of the endless work that has gone in to these questions. And he would have remedied this issue of kind of blank slateism or uh, kind of inventing the whale fallacy he's kind of fallen into here, right from the off where he's trying to suggest this article is something new, I'm doing something bold here. And what, where the, what that gets him is a chance to write from a blank slate, from a kind of a, a zero point. Uh, and maybe that's a good thing in some ways because he's not encumbered, like you say, with having to put in 28 references to this book and that book and Z book and so on. But by the same token, I think his arguments would have been improved had he thought about and processed some of the previous thinking on this topic. Because after all, that is the point of intellectual discourse. It's connecting in to a conversation which has already been started before you and which will continue after you and trying to enrich that conversation. There are a lot of good points that you've made there, of which I agree with. I was kind of overstating my case at the start just to um, get the ball rolling. I'm wondering what, I know I'm aware that you're somebody who's, well, who used to anyway, follow Radiohead quite closely and listen to them quite a bit. What do you make of his analysis of Radiohead? Do you find it persuasive? I find it I find it too limiting and determinative, but at the same time, most of the best arguments are are limiting. So I, I love how I love how kind of blunt he is and I love how single minded he is about his kind of interpretative kind of stance on Radiohead about like what the band is doing and their music, what the music might mean. 
I love how single-minded it is, and I love how reductive it is, actually. Um, I think if you were to, if he was to submit this as a, I'm sorry to take everything back to scholarship, but if he was to submit this as a piece of scholarship, I would want it to be a little bit more consistent and rigorous in thinking through some of its claims, but I love at the same time that it doesn't need to be. So I love that he just has these poetic blanket uh, kind of assertions about things like environing fear and environing atmosphere and the kind of affective states which he thinks Radiohead embodies. So things like he talks later on about the way that the idea of broadcast culture, the idea that there's all these messages coming in from late capitalism and from the kind of technosphere, where it's the internet and phones and television and computers. He, he, he's quite convincing about the way that Radiohead's music might try to deal with some of those ideas and how it moves from on Pablo Honey and the Benz, which are their first two albums, it moves from a kind of a lyrical reflection on some of those ideas of anxiety and technophobia and so on. It moves from that to a kind of a musical and textual or, or lyrical exploration of those ideas. So his argument obviously is that in albums like OK Computer and especially in Kid A, Amnesiac and Hail to the Thief, their music, the sounds of their music, the instruments they're using are actually reflecting some of these cultural tropes or cultural uh, tendencies and embodying them. So so we, we listen to a track like Everything in Its Right Place or National Anthem or Idiotech, and he thinks that we actually experience the culture. It's being reflected back to us in a critical way, in, a, in an Adornian way. This is a very straightforwardly Adornian argument about the music allegorically embodying a social critique. It's embodying the, the social reality or the social moments that, it, that it's emerged in and it's reflecting on it and critiquing it. And he thinks that that can serve as a, a motivating factor for audiences, for their defiance to be raised and for political kind of action to take place. So he has this, this it's kind of a neat argument, but nevertheless, I found it, if not fully convincing, then at least provocative and in some way persuasive about their music. I agree uh, on, on that point, and I agree with what you say about the uh, form, these little islands of kind of observations, which, while they're not developed as fully as they might have been, create a nice kind of sequence between themselves. They kind of, these, these long paragraphs just kind of end, and then it goes on to another topic. I think that that's a real strength of this essay format, which he uses. Uh, for me, more problematic about his analysis of Radiohead is at times, I think he's reading a bit too much into the music or uh, creating meaning, which maybe isn't actually there. I mean, this is one of the problems with analysis, whether you're projecting uh, something onto the object of analysis or whether it actually resides within that object. But at times I feel when reading the lyrics and uh, interpreting the instrumentation in terms of technological developments and so on, there is an element whereby he's kind of projecting some of his own concerns onto the music and claiming that it it just exists inherently there. That said, it definitely made me appreciate a little bit more some of Tom York's lyrics, which I've always uh, found well, actually one of the real stumbling blocks about getting into Radiohead's music. For me, they, they always just seem too vague and not not particularly insightful, but he, I think Greif offers a, a good argument here for their, that as a kind of strategic element within Radiohead's musical outlook. Just taking the question of meaning and rejection and so on here, I'd love if he, Greif, that is, had 
kind of interpreted some of the non-significant lyrics as I would see them, like the lyrics which don't really seem to mean anything. Like, for example, uh, that song Spinning Plates, like Spinning Plates, where the chorus line is, this just feels like spinning plates, sung in this really kind of dramatic way. Clearly doesn't mean anything. It's just probably something that came into his head. I think that that is an equally important aspect of this music. So not only the meaningful and significant aspects, but the meaningless uh, slightly nonsensical elements and uh, that's an aspect of Radiohead's music I would like to see engage with more here. Well I think actually I mentioned the word determinative earlier which wasn't a very clear way of, of kind of getting across what I meant but you, you've honed in on it there which is to say that he fixes the band's music in a certain image. Everything else kind of gets left by the wayside. What you're saying there about it would have been nice if he'd, if he'd talked about some of the more meaningless moments. Well he can't because his argument is that the band's music is top to bottom, all the way down, an embodiment of this social anxiety and this cultural anxiety. And so therefore, in order for him to have his case be as strong as it can be, he kind of instrumentalizes everything that happens in the music to that end, to that argument. So moments which might seem more meaningless or trivial or accidental, if you like, are, are ignored. And moments which might which we might see as much more nebulous and unfixed and musical, if you like, organizes within this kind of framework of anxiety and so on, which he absolutely, like you say, he, he kind of lets the lyrics lead him down that line, doesn't he? That's a familiar tactic from a lot of analysis, whether it's academic or not. It's a common tactic within reviews, popular music reviews, classical music reviews, using composers' biographies, using knowledge of a band, using gossipy knowledge of an artist's life, using their lyrics as a as a kind of a guide or a kind of a a determining factor. One of my classes in one of my modules that I run is on popular music analysis and we look at an example of Walter Everett talking about Strawberry Feels Forever by, by the Beatles and his whole argument is that he's going to analyse the music in order to show how the music is embodying nostalgia and remembering and all this stuff and we pick apart his article in detail and we, we show that he's simply got that idea from one from the lyrics and two from his knowledge of John Lennon's life. And any musical justification he gives is a purely unconvincing supplementation to the literary analysis which he's actually resting his argument on. Yeah, and the same thing is going on here, isn't it? You, like you just said. Yeah, that's that's what I thought. That's a good impression, supplementing it. I, I just think in this regard of a, a friend of ours who got to work with some of these Radiohead stems for Kid A, for example, and uh, what he said about the longer kind of recording session tracks which you can listen to and uh, what they suggest about how the album was written basically so that if let's say you just listen to Kid A as it is you might project all these meanings onto it but whereas if you actually hear the recording process a lot of things happen by chance slightly fluky and maybe not in such a serious way um, but we're inclined not to want to think of it that way actually the first track on, on Kid A everything in its right place this friend of ours, I remember saying, it goes on, starts about 10 minutes earlier than that, if not 20 minutes with loads of noodling around and aimless sort of farting about in instruments before eventually something comes together. And Radiohead then edited it down as Basio Parker, that Miles Davis's producer would do and create something different out of it. So yeah, I suppose, I mean, it's, it's not really my area, but I would like to see popular music analysis be able to engage a little bit more with well, the actual recording process and that type of thing. There's a whole movement in uh, musicology, 
the musicology of record production, the attempt to grapple with the studio process and so on. But what you've said there does raise a, an issue, which is the, the gulf between, well, it's the intentional fallacy, isn't it? So the way that they created it might be irrelevant. True, true. But it becomes relevant when you're trying to assign a meaning to it, I think, to historicize it. I mean, what, what Greif is talking about doing here is talking about how or expressing how the music incarnates an historical moment well that's the historical background to the music then is absolutely relevant to uh, that how that argument will be presented true but feel as if um the only reliable evidence that we can either use to support his claim or to criticize his claim is i don't know this is a bigger question but to me he it seems as if he has enough to go on in the songs now we can pick apart his arguments on that level because he's not necessarily arguing about what the musicians were intending. I think he's arguing that these songs, as they exist on these albums, are manifesting these feelings, these, this atmosphere, this evocation of this anxious moment. So I guess as a counter to him, as a response to, the, to that counter, he might say, well, I, I, that's irrelevant. The, the rehearsal, the, the editing it down. What I'm thinking about is the meaning of that actual three or four minutes that's on the record. And Tom York may not have intended it, or Johnny Greenwood may not have intended the meanings I'm projecting onto it. But nevertheless, I feel like there's a strong case for those for those meanings and for interpreting this music in that way. But I still think there's a there's a case against it, which we which we've been making, which is that he over determines or over uh, instrumentalizes the music in terms of the words and in terms of the images and the videos and so on, which all create a sense of this atmosphere that he's talking about. And then the music, because the music is such a, in one sense, a weak sign, it's a very strong sign in other ways, signifier, very strong signifier in other ways, but in some ways it's a very weak signifier. And it can't tell us that it's raining and it can't tell us that, you know, the radiator is yellow unless we assign specific symbolic meaning to certain musical sounds. So therefore it gets loaded up with all these big political arguments. And it's it's very hard to it's very hard to, to discern between the levels of his arguments. In other words, between the words, the videos and then the music, the music just gets kind of incorporated into this argument in a kind of a subtle and insidious way. So on that level, I'd, I'd want to criticize him. I'm not sure I'd. I think about the the rehearsals. It's the same argument about sketches in Beethoven and, and historical musicology. Are sketches relevant? Well, of course they are. Well, we might we may differ on that, but uh, yeah, I mean, just just raising this to be critical. I'm not saying that it really bothered me all that much about the article. But yeah, I would just come back in closing to the possibilities that this article shows for the essayistic form in writing about music I, I really think that there's a lot of potential there and that for academics and Greif is actually an academic he's not a musicologist but uh, he has written um, an academic book as well as this uh, for a- academics it can be useful to work outside the academy to, for writing in this manner and in, in an ex- kind of explorative way that uh, might be useful uh, for the discipline I totally agree and I just I just say just very briefly I really enjoyed this article and there's a lot even though I didn't go fully along with the arguments there's loads in here which is really provocative and it's not just about Radiohead but about the power of popular music and music in general to act as a kind of a, a source of defiance for people and a sort a spur for people's uh, kind of sense of what the world could be um, and he's quite actually realistic and skeptical about the limitations of music and culture as a political as a political form, but nevertheless offers some kind of positive and, and constructive readings of 
of Radiohead and of music in general in, the, in that way, which is interesting. And he also says a lot of interesting things about the music, notwithstanding all the things we were just saying about the way he loads up the music with extra musical meanings. He nevertheless has really, really interesting things to say, and fair dues to him for actually spending time talking about the sounds and how they're made and, and, and how they're put together, because those passages really lift the, the article to me. So, so yeah, so I, I got a lot from this piece. True. Well, what just in, finally in closing, the one thing I did think was missing in relation to talking about popular music and what it is and what it can do is any mention of emotion, the emotional content of the music. For me, that's one of the prime things that distinguishes pop music from other types of music, this emotional resonance, which really draws us to it often. That's slightly unfashionable, and I wouldn't really expect maybe somebody discussing Radiohead to mention that, but I think it definitely does feature in their appeal. You just opened a can of worms there. <laughs> why is popular music, why is the emotion of popular music any different to other music? Well, I, maybe I can't rationalise this, but I can say that intuitively that's what I feel. I just think back to certain moments in my own life when I was, uh, you know, neck deep in this like abstruse Western classical composition, writing my PhD thesis and so on. And for whatever reasons, I was uh, listening to, you know, Fleetwood Mac rumors in, <laughs> in the evening because this is what really, what really, like, I don't know, I had to, like, I really, it was necessary for me to listen to. And uh, it had something in it, which I couldn't get from other music. But it's because it's like talking about Lou Reed and music as a life. Music as something lived and, and like incarnated in a person. Music in this guise. And, you know, to take that sort of well-known example, Fleetwood Mac rumors, it's something that really um, we use to sort of uh, filter our lived experience through, which, um, I mean, you, you mightn't get so much from notated instrumental contemporary music or something like that possibly yeah i mean that's yeah I, to me emotion is available from all music but but absolutely i agree that different musics probably provide different people different emotions at different times to be completely relativistic about it yeah well i mean I, for me there's no denying that that's part of the appeal of radiohead Okay, well, we go on to the second one. Yeah, let's. So the next topic under discussion is the current issue of the German journal Musik Text, issue 149, May 2016, in which there's a whole section on the so-called New Discipline, which is a compositional movement named recently by the Irish composer and performer Jennifer Walsh, and which, well, seems to be that rarest of things, a genuinely new uh, compositional movement. I feel like this is something that composers have sometimes gotten scared of naming in the past couple of decades because it may be slightly unfashionable to suggest that there's something new. But that's what Jennifer Walsh is doing here. Um, before I discuss what exactly the new discipline is, just a word on Jennifer Walsh. Uh, so Jennifer Walsh was born in Dublin in 1974. She studied composition at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama and privately with Kevin Volans in Dublin before getting her PhD from Northwestern University in Chicago in 2002. In 2000, uh, Jennifer Walsh won the Cranachers Music Prize at the Darmstadt Summer Courses and she has since then taught there quite often and I think she's teaching at Darmstadt now basically every year. She's won numerous prizes and she's gotten well, quite a name for herself on mainland Europe and in Ireland and in the UK. She's currently reader in music at Brunel University in London. Uh, as well as being a composer, she's a vocalist, as mentioned, and an improviser. She performs her own music quite often. In 2007, she developed this project called Groupat, which was this fake compositional collective involving 12 different 
alter egos of Walsh herself, 12 different Irish composers, I think, member of this imaginary collective. And it's a project that involved compositions, installations, graphic scores, films, photography, sculptures, and fashion. And this sort of points the way towards what Walsh has named now with the new discipline. And just a declaration before we get going and talking about this, uh, we both, you and I, Stephen, have had some um, involvement with Jenny Walsh. You were briefly your colleague in Brunel, right? Yeah, I was very briefly. And you also wrote an entry in uh, Walsh's project Ashtuk, which is a book published a couple of years ago, a fake uh, history of the Irish avant-garde. Yeah, I did. I did a few, I made up five people. <laughs> okay, okay. And uh, I, I, I don't really have any direct involvement with Walsh's work in that way, but uh, I've been writing something on her music recently, so I've been in contact with her. So now to move on to the new discipline, I'm just going to read out a couple of quotations from Walsh's articles. So there are several articles in this issue of music text, a couple of them by Walsh herself on what the new discipline is, and then others by various composers who Walsh has named as being part of this movement. And these other composers are kind of reacting to the name and reflecting on what they think it means. I'm just going to read now from Walsh's uh, article, The New Discipline. The New Discipline is a term I've adopted over the last year. The term functions as a way for me to connect compositions which have a wide range of disparate interests, but all share the common concern of being rooted in the physical, theatrical and visual, as well as musical, pieces which often invoke the extra musical, which activate the non-cochlear. In performance, these are works in which the ear, the eye and the brain are expected to be active and engaged, works in which we understand that there are people on the stage, that these people are or have bodies. The new discipline is a way of working, both in terms of composing and preparing pieces for performance. It isn't a style, though pieces may share similar aesthetic concerns. Composers working in this way draw on dance, theatre, film, video, visual art, installation, literature, stand-up comedy. In the rehearsal room, the composer functions as a director or choreographer, perhaps most completely as an auteur. This is the discipline, the rigour of finding, learning and developing new compositional and performative tools. So, end of quote. And just to um, state as well, Walsh points out that, quote, the new discipline thrives on the inheritance of data, fluxus, situationism and so on, but doesn't allow itself to be written off merely as data, fluxus, situationism and so on. It's a music being written when data, fluxus, situationism and so on have aged well and are universally respected. It takes these styles for granted, both lovingly and cheekily, in the same way it takes harmony and the electric guitar for granted, as starting points, as places to begin working. End of quote. And Walsh kind of mentions a lot of her own interests in this regard. But I think what all this represents is that while staking a claim for the fact that what one is doing isn't just copying some old avant-garde movement from whatever 40 years ago but really stating the specificity of the current moment in relation to musical composition and uh, one or two of the contributors to this music text point out that these are kind of activities that were often seen as marginal in new music and a music theater and this experimental style and incorporating multimedia but which over the past decade or two have actually started really being in the mainstream of European uh, art music that there are so many composers uh, using multimedia and video and uh, all these different things that it can't really be considered peripheral anymore. So just to point out one of the things that Walsh mentions in that passage I quoted, stand-up comedy. I went to a performance by Walsh uh, along with two other performers in Dublin in November, I think it was, she was performing with MC Schmidt from Matmos and Nick Roth, a composer and saxophonist. 
Walsh was doing vocals, Ross was on saxophone, and MC Schmidt was on a sampler. And it was free improvisation. It wasn't free improvisation in the style that's kind of familiar from Evan Parker and people working in that idiom. It was at times genuinely like stand-up comedy. It was so bizarre that it would start out maybe with pitched notes, then move into extended techniques and so on, but especially through the use of the sampler and then Walsh's vocal imitations of whatever sounds are coming from the sampler, it just turned into this bizarre kind of performance art, comedy, music hybrid that was really hard to pin down and I think it was, it was such an exciting thing to see so refreshing and uh, yeah, so I mean it convinces me along with the kind of manifesto and theoretical explanations here that there is a genuinely new thing happening uh, also I would add that having lived in London for a few years I've seen a lot of this type of thing uh, in concerts at City University and with the collective bastard assignments who are, who are mentioned in this issue and so, yeah, there, there does seem to be something taken off. What were your reactions to uh, these articles, Stephen? Um, well, like so much of what Jenny Walsh does, I think she's amazing at kicking the hornet's nest and kind of provoking a conversation. So I really, really was intrigued by this concept and was more and more as I read through each of the pieces. And there's a range of responses that she gathers together and that music texts gather together to this concept of the new discipline. Some of them respond explicitly in terms of taking on that term. Some of them just place their work kind of more generally or implicitly within this area. But as I kind of read on and as I thought about more and more of the concerts I've seen over the last five to 10 years, I became more and more convinced that this was a, a useful and kind of a valid term, as valid as any other term is, because terms Terms, concepts, labels are always limiting. They're always a kind of a failure. So, of course, we can point to ways that this term doesn't do justice to certain practitioners, maybe, or limits other ones, or does a kind of a re reduces music in some ways. But that's what labels do. Benefits of this term are that it gathers together all these different strands in a really concise and to me, fairly convincing way. And it connects all these practitioners and composers back to the history that you talked about without limiting them back to that to that history. So without having to, to describe them merely as neo-avant-garde or neo-dadaist or in terms of instrumental theatre or music theatre. This is a new concept for a new time and a new kind of composer without getting too idealistic about it by any means. But it seems to me to be a useful and valid term. Yeah, and I would point out that you're right about how terms function. They're, they're useful, but never absolutely accurate. But Walsh does point out on a couple of occasions that she's not a musicologist. This isn't a musicological definition. It's just a way of composers or a means for composers to begin talking to each other about what they're doing. I really like the tone of defiance in some of the articles here. For example, uh, Matt Shlomovitz's article that a label doesn't have to be theoretically watertight and valid to be useful. It just has to be useful. And for an artist, that, that's all that really matters, just facilitating the work getting written and created. Hello. I would add that uh, in my own experience and through my own studies, I can see clearly enough that having a label is definitely useful for a composer for marketing their work, basically. Not that I'm saying that that's what Walsh, Walsh is doing here. I mean, there is that there is that element to this, isn't there? Again, whether whether that's her motivation or not, and I doubt it's her primary motivation or even 
maybe even a significant motivation. But whether that's coming from her perspective or not, there is a marketization going on here, or there is a, a market impulse or a market possibility, which is left open by this term, which actually is quite powerful. And I think more people should invent terms and try and invent movements, because why not? This is the way that we make sense of culture. And they're attractive. They, they create energy and they create charisma and they attract audiences to them because they give a sense of something actually happening and some purpose, some common purpose lying behind different practices, which w without those terms would feel disparate and fragmented. So I'm all for the invention of new disciplines and the new discipline in particular. And I wish more people did it. Our age is lacking movements and our age is lacking, you know, subcultures and, and cultures that that gather things together in this way. So I really appreciate what, what she's trying to do here. I don't know whether it's going to have a wider impact or effect or not, but either way, I think the evidence across these very different responses, which maybe we should get into just a little bit, uh, some of the specific responses, the, the evidence across all these, once you gather them all together, is, as we've said, of a kind of a strong, somewhat collective movement towards something and away from something else. No, I absolutely agree with the, the, the points you've made there. I think we definitely need more movements, uh, nearly the more the better. Uh, I think it, it's something that can really capture the imagination of listeners besides the kind of more often more technical explanations which composers give their movement, or, or sorry, which composers give their music. Framing it in terms of a movement uh, puts it in, in a broader historical place where people can can make sense of it and it can make it more approachable. I think there's a pressure on composers now really though to frame their music theoretically when they're applying for grants and when they're entering their music into competitions and so on. And I think that's one of the reasons why we get often these very long-winded uh, program notes, which I've been critical of in the past, maybe over critical, maybe slightly unfair, that often composers' works do come saddled with this type of thing, but it's it's something that they just have to do because it's part of the institutional framework for their music, for its reception and for its promotion and so on. Yeah, just to turn to one of the main points, uh, I think Walsh's interpretation in particular leans on in her articles here. Uh, she really stresses the fact that in this multimedia movement where theatre and video and music all kind of come together, the body is what's primary and that's sort of the unifying thing here. It's bringing music back to the body. The new discipline is enabling new music to dive into people. That's the phrase she uses, to dive into people. And Walsh puts herself into her music quite a lot. Recently, I saw her perform uh, one of her recent kind of major works called The Total Mountain in Dublin. I think you've seen a performance of that too. So it's a solo performance where it's about 25 minutes long. Walsh does everything and she uses a video screen behind her and um, amplification, she uses a microphone. And uh, she dresses up one point, I think, or she's she's kind of uh, invoking these different personas. She's also interacting with her virtual self. So the actual body there on stage is interacting with the virtual image on the screen. And there's a very striking opening scene to that piece of music where there's kind of a alternation, this surreal alternation between a, a virtual and an actual self. So this engagement with the self and bringing the body into music is uh, one of Walsh's main focuses in the new discipline. Is that something you think? Uh... It's funny you should kind of focus on this issue of the body because this has just been one of my bugbears for a long time. I hate when people talk about the body <laughs> because okay. I feel like I feel like it's just this is not, and I'm not just saying this just to 
be a, a you know a personable person. This is not a criticism of you or actually of Jenny Walsh because I understand the motivation to want to talk about the body, but I feel like we've had 30 or 40 years of people wanting to put the body back into debate and into question. And I feel like it's a straw, it's a straw man characterization of things outside this movement. So like, when was the body not important? Well, maybe the word body or the body needs to be rebranded. We need to use a different word for it uh, because the old the old brand has gotten a little bit uh, stale. I know what you mean. I think that I, I actually find what she's saying here interesting. But at the same time, when I read something that say, talks about the body in an academic, academic context, often I kind of my heart sinks a little bit because, yeah, the, you're right. There, there has been a lot of a lot of work on that. There has, I just feel like here, yes, bodies are being used in a certain way, but they're always used. So I feel like I'd love the language to be a little bit more subtle in that respect. But honestly, it's a tiny little bugbear I had with it because actually for, for a large part of these, these pieces and her editorial and her statements, I was nodding in agreement, you know? I, I definitely want to, again, raise the point though that I don't want to idealize this thing and I don't want to be determinate about it and say, these people are all operating in the new discipline and that's all they do. And it's a solid term, which is really, really strong as a term. I do think it is a strong term and it's valid and it's useful, but there's limitations to it as there are with all terms and labels. And I wouldn't want to idealize this practice and watershed it away from the rest of musical history too much because as Jennifer Walsh would acknowledge, I'm sure, and as she, she points out in her piece and as some of the other people point out, there's a history, there's a secret history and there's an explicit history behind this stuff. And I wouldn't want to overplay the, the differences between this kind of stuff, what maybe some other composers and artists are doing. Right. I mean, most obviously, the, this stuff, I think, relates quite closely to Fluxus. Yeah. The well-known Compositions 1960 of Lamont Young and yeah, all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. Compositions 1960, by all means. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 close to that but with the difference that it's engaging with um, with technology one of the contributors here can't remember who mentioned that youtube performances or youtube recordings of performances were now as valid as you know world premieres and this type of thing which i thought was totally yeah. true totally true i mean that's how a lot of us now get our feed of contemporary classical music and find out what's going on not necessarily in the actual moment of the performance but in its video so that where the new discipline will often involve video used on stage, but also it itself is part of the video dissemination via the, via the internet. Yeah, YouTube and other technologies are obviously really important, not just in the, as you said, not just in the dissemination, but also in the in the construction and making of, of some of this work. Brigitte Munterdorf, she works a lot with YouTube. Johannes Kriedler works work on YouTube, like charts, music, and other pieces like that. So yeah, so, so the techno technological element is, is obviously, if not new, then at least significant in a, in a kind of a new way to some of this work. So we won't have time to go into all these pieces in depth, but just to give a sense of some of them, they, we get a range of responses. Some of them are slightly more theoretical considerations of some of these concepts. So Matthew Shlomovitz talks about automation. Louis de Houdier talks about theatrical scores. Helbig talks about self-performativity. Stephen Takasugi talks about his concept of uninvited guests and all these different concepts relate in some broad or specific sense to the new discipline. We also get some personal reflections on, on kind of practice. So Edward Henderson and Andy Ingemals talk about their own practice as composers and musicians and how this connects up with the new discipline. James Saunders talks a lot about his own practice. And then we also get kind of in media res kind of embodiments of these ideas. 
So Amanda Feely, for example, has a really interesting text which throws you into the feeling of a new discipline piece, if you like, its performance on the page. And there's another piece by Hodkinson which does a kind of a similar thing. So it's really worth checking out, and the English translations of this are available for free online without any kind of subscription. If you're listening, we'd encourage you to, to go and check it out. One thing I'd just mention as well is that for me, this whole thing resonates outside of the music sphere in kind of wider discussions of in the past decade or so about, you know, the irrelevance of copyright and notions of originality and multimedia and so on. I'm thinking here in particular of David Shields' book, Reality Hunger. I'm not sure, have you read that? Mm. So yeah. it kind of relates to... Actually, I mean, it really reminded me of, of, of some of what I've read in that book. And in that way, I think what these composers are doing can be related to broader trends in the arts, so not just in music. So much for the new discipline. Now, moving on finally to research in the round, where we discuss some recent publications in the field of musicology. Firstly, I would just point out, keeping actually with that issue of music text, issue 149, May 2016, there is a whole section on Pierre Boulez, mainly by... Uh, Germanophone composers uh, talking about his legacy. So there's some interesting stuff here from Hans Sander, Jakob Ullmann, Enno Pape, Nicolas Huber, Jörg Hiller, and uh, many others. But Boulez's legacy, and there's also some stuff about Ear Camp, so that's worth checking out. Uh, on the website, there aren't any English translations. Nevertheless, it's yeah, some topical stuff. What about you, Stephen? I just wanted to flag up the latest issue of popular music. It's on a topic which, to be honest, initially I thought, oh God, that's a bit boring. I don't know why they've done that. And this is on music and alcohol. So it's a special issue on music and alcohol. I guess thinking about it, once I started to think about it, I realized it's a potentially very interesting and compelling subject. And I had a read of the introduction and one of the articles. Yes, it, it is indeed a very interesting topic because actually... The way that they're posing this this link between music and alcohol, the editors of this issue, who are Keith Negus, who's a colleague of mine, and John Street, they're suggesting that alcohol acts as a kind of a cultural intermediary, so a kind of a, a, a kind of a historical actor, if you like, in music and in other forms of culture, where it can act as a, a personal stimulus, it can act as a social lubricant, but also a kind of a, a kind of a facet of history as a kind of something which influences culture, cultural change, cultural actions, and so on. They reflect this in the kinds of articles that they publish. There's one article on drink song and politics in early modern England. So that's in the 17th century about the, the interactions of alcohol and what we might call popular music cultures at that time. That's by Angela McShane. There's another article about the temperance movement in the late 19th century, so the musical war against alcohol. There's an article on Robert Wyatt, so the, the influence of alcohol on Wyatt's creativity as a songwriter and his performance anxiety. And then there's a whole range of other articles. So there's one on specific ideas such as alcoholic sponsorship of a Glasgow jazz festival and then the Music Licensing Act of 2003 in Britain. So again, check that issue out. There's lots of interesting perspectives on this, this link between music and alcohol. Sounds really interesting. Was it Lennon who said no revolution ever started in a pub? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no music. Don't all revolutions start there? No, everybody gets too lazy to to uh, have their revolution, so they uh, they stay in bed the next day instead. But that sounds really interesting. Actually, must check that out. Yeah, so that's it from us. Thank you. See you next time. Thanks. Bye.